Good morning, everybody. So good to be with you guys. Thanks for joining us. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you. I'm Pastor Jesse. We're so glad that you're here. Um, I'm, we've got a full house. You guys must have heard about the sermon title. Everybody's here. We're in um, the third part of our Hot Topic series, which is an audience-driven sermon series. And this morning, we're going to talk about Christianity and sexuality. So I'm assuming that's why you're here. Uh, if you're not here for that reason, and you're like, well, did not sign up for this. Was not looking forward to it. I have the wrong people in my row, whatever it is. I'm not sure. I'm going to pray an extra long prayer and give you some cover to slip out. Uh, I'm not kidding, actually. Um, some of you are like, uh, I brought my 10-year-old to church. I didn't realize. That's fine. Uh, you can go out to talk in the parking lot. Whatever you want to do. It's up to you. Uh, we are going to jump right in. I did want to just uh, thank everybody for your continued faithfulness and support. So Christ Church has continued to grow um, year over year. This year has been no different. But what's been happening also is just people have become part of the Christ Church family, begun to give generously and consistently. And man, we have had a tough and expensive year. Can I get an amen? And yet we've seen that giving be just really, really faithful. And so tomorrow and for this whole entire week, Monday to Friday, we're having two of our three enormous air conditioners replaced. $37,000 worth of air conditioners. Now, some of you are like, wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is a lot of money, but they're 20 years old and they could go out at any time. And we'd rather not have a couple services with no air conditioning. How does that sound? And so we knew they were going to be back ordered, so we ordered them. And then when they came in, we scheduled to have them installed. And I just want to let you know that because of your generosity and, and because of the principles of financial stewardship that the church has, all that money has been set aside. And we're not doing any type of special offering. We don't need anything from you. And you're going to come back here. It's all going to be done. And the building is going to be climactically perfect uh, in the future. Just the way the pastor likes it at 68 degrees. It's going to be great. Anyway, but that's happening, and I just wanted to say thank you, because it's because of your faithfulness that we're able to plan, save, have enough, and do what needs to be done without hitting everybody up. And if you've been in an environment where there's, it's just a needy environment, you know what it's like to be asked again and again and again and again and again. And that's just something to celebrate. Amen? Yeah. All right, so let's pray. Let's thank the Lord. Let's ask him uh, to speak to us. And if you feel like you want to slip the kids out uh, during the prayer, you're welcome to do that, uh, or grandma or whoever. I don't know. Uh, I do want to tell you, we, uh, this is going to be a frank conversation using words from the Bible, but it will not be vulgar. Okay, so you have enough, I'm not, there's, no, there's going to be very little funny this morning, and it's not going to be vulgar, but it is going to be frank, so I want you to be prepared for that, amen? Okay. God, we thank you and praise you for the miracles that you do in our own hearts and lives. God, thank you that you are our rescuer. You are the one who comes to us when we have sought to be our own God, and you lift us up out of the muck and mire of our own self-destructive behaviors, and you set our feet upon a rock, and his name is Jesus. God, we thank you that you give us your spirit without measure, and you empower us to not only know you and walk with you, but to bear the fruit of the spirit. God, to live lives of love, of dedication, of faithfulness to look more and more and more like Jesus every day. And God, thank you that you care about the real stuff of life and your word does not shy away from it. God, as we address the topic of sexuality and the implications that has for people of every demographic throughout history and what that means for each one of us individually, God, we just want to invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Lord, where we have wrong and preconceived notions, we pray that you would change our mind. God, where we have bitterness or anger or hurts that keep us from receiving good things from you. God, I pray that you would heal us. 
Lord, where there's distortions of reality that cyclically bring us into destructive patterns, God, I pray you'd set us free. And Lord, I pray that you would lift our eyes to see that which is of most value. Lord, that you have made us for yourself, that we were made by love and for love, and that you are eager to pour out your love upon us. God, would you do now what only you can do as we turn our attention to the scriptures. Holy Spirit, make it come alive. It's active and living, and I pray it would do its work in our hearts and minds. God, I pray that lives would change and the world would be a little better because of the truth of your word this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. So I got a lot of questions in this audience-driven sermon series uh, related to the topic of sexuality, and I put this out to our middle and high school students as well, and 90% of the questions they asked cir circulated around th this topic as well, uh, particularly the, the LGBTQIA plus agenda that's been kind of forced on them in schools that they're trying to interpret and with their parents' help understand and get some handles for. And so I want to I want to address this, although this is a massive topic and one that I could easily spend multiple weeks on. In fact, I, I had so much content on the topic of pornography alone that I actually pulled all of it out to put it into another sermon. So we'll get to that eventually, but the only way we're going to get to the center of what God wants to speak to us this morning is by really focusing in. And so we're going to jump right in. Uh, I want to give to everyone listening what has been the obvious, clear, and historic Christian sexual ethic really unarguably since the beginning of time. Uh, and I say that because there's an onslaught of Christian opposition to this reality, and you can find on the internet at, at a quick Google search Christians who will affirm every sort of sexual aberration possible. Uh, the good news is that's never not been the case. So even in the New Testament letters, there are Christians who are doing all sorts of um, terrible, terrible things sexually, and those are addressed in the New Testament letters. So this is not a, a new problem. It's an old problem. But the, the answer hasn't changed. And so if you're here at Christ Church and you're feeling out what kind of church is this and you're wondering uh, how progressive are we, I mean, our pastor wears jeans and vans when he's not in flip-flops. Uh, I just want to tell you that the scripture's teaching on a sexual ethic is not complicated. Uh, at all. The, uh, the clear, unified teaching of the scripture on human sexuality is this. Here, I wrote it down for you. Sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in a lifelong marriage covenant that most often results in children and the establishment of the family unit that is the building blocks of a prosperous society. It's that simple. That is what is presented in the beginning of the scriptures. That is what is guarded throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And that is what is uh, reaffirmed multiple times again and again and again. Which means that God has put significant and very close boundaries around human sexuality in his design of human sexuality. Which means, this is the very simple, simplest way I can think to say this is that for all humanity, God's ethical expression of sexuality is either married and monogamous or single and celibate. And that's all. And that is radically unpopular. <laughs> and, and sadly, uh, hardly applied. And I'm not just talking about out there. I'm talking about 
in here. And so it's real for all of us. Now, I'm going to show this to you in the scriptures, but before I show it to you, I also just want to acknowledge what the Bible readily acknowledges on just about every page that has any reference to sexuality, and that is our world is really, really, really broken. And because sex is a gift from God and is a powerful force, it is very frequently harnessed by the enemy, exploited and corrupted in our human experience. And so I know that this room contains people who suffered sexual abuse as children, who were the victims of sexual violence, who were uh, addicted to unwanted sexual behavior, who propagated betrayal and unfaithfulness, who are stuck in cycles of sexual dysfunction, who are hiding and are covered in shame and guilt. There's anger, bitterness, pain. There are single people who are fixated on sex and, and feel uh, unloved by God because they have no, no partner. There's an there's incredible array of human experience, and all of it is just vastly emotional, painful, and at the core and center of what it feels like to be you. And that's the case for every single one of us. Uh, I got news for you. There are no perfect sexual saints all of us are living in a very complicated world. And so we can all take a collective breath. And then let's hear what God has to say. As I mentioned in the first sermon, we need a Jesus-centered worldview. And in order to do that, we needed those seven components, which you can go back and listen to. But the first of them was creation. And the foundation for all Christian belief really goes back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And this question of sexuality is no different. So look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So there's something different about mankind than the rest of creation. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so man has not only a designation in the likeness of God, and is therefore dignified and special, but also has a calling to bring order to the world and to steward all of God's creation. And then we have this indented poem for our memory's sake. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Do you see the redundancy here? This is trying to get your attention. This is really critical and really important. Male and female, he created them. And so you have the intention of God in the gender binary. Right there in the scriptures. Now that doesn't mean that the gender binary is not adversely affected by the fall or through all sorts of other environmental factors. It absolutely is. But this is God's design. And it carries God's blessing. And God blessed them, verse 28, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Guess how that fruitfulness and multiplication comes? And fill the earth and subdue it and have, this is why I mentioned in my definition, that this most often results in children and the establishment of the family unit that is the building blocks of a prosperous society. Uh, and so we see that, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, of the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then the Genesis 1 is the creation narrative, and then you get a kind of a rerun in Genesis chapter 2. Because Genesis chapter 2 zooms back into the specific creation of man as male and female, and the whole storyline. I, I usually harness every wedding ceremony I officiate to tell this story. I love this story. But Genesis chapter 2 is all about its last two verses. It's all about marriage. That's what Genesis 2 is about. It's about God creating man as male and female and then taking these two. So he shows Adam who's alone. It's not good to be alone. So all throughout the creation narrative, and it was good, and it was good. God saw 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 it was very good. And then you go back to when God had created Adam but not Eve, and it says it was not good. Do you see that? 
And so, okay, it's not good for man to be alone. And then what does God do? He causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He takes a rib, which is a terrible translation, really is a side, almost half. He separates the one to make a counterpart. And then in a sexual union in the context of marriage, the two become one. And that is what Genesis chapter 2 is all about. And it culminates in verse 24 and 25. Therefore, for the reason of this chapter, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that is a picture of the sexual union. This verse is going to be quoted over and over and over again throughout the rest of the scriptures as the justification for the Christian sexual ethic as it develops through every chapter of the Bible and as it opposes every aberration of God's sexual ethic. And then verse 25, and this is where everything was perfect. Look, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And that is a picture of perfect vulnerability. This is a picture of perfect compliment. This is a picture of perfect acceptance. And in an unbroken world that is untainted by sin and death, the sexual union in the context of marriage brings with it a willingness to be completely exposed, completely known and cherished, and in a trust relationship with the other person where there is no shame. Isn't that beautiful? And really, honestly, all of us know deep down that's what we're trying to get back to. But most of us have significant amounts of shame wrapped up inside of our sexual experience. Now, part of the reason for this is what happened in chapter 3, and that is when the tempter came, and the one rule, come on, the one rule that God gave Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they broke the one rule, and their eyes were open, and they began to see that they were naked. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is why the fashion industry has always been anchored into the evil of the past. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the, gar- in the garden in the cool of the day. So we have this relationship with God where he's just present with them. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what happens? When that sin takes place, when that brokenness and separation from God exists, we hide from God. And so there's, an, there's a shame that's, that's now broken between the two of them where now they're hiding from each other, covering themselves, and now they're hiding from the presence of God. But the Lord God called to the man and said, and I love this, where are you? Listen, this is not cosmic hide-and-seek, friends. Does God need GPS on Adam and Eve to know where they are? He's asking the question, you moved from me. Where did you go and why? Do you see how important this is? And this is the same with the sexual brokenness in our world. It moves us away from God. It moves us away from each other. It invokes shame and it ends up being plagued with darkness. He said, I heard you in the sound of the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Does he just sound like a good father even back then? Yeah. Did you eat a cookie? No. There's chocolate on your face. No. And I love this because it pictures God moving towards Adam and Eve. Now, there's consequences to our brokenness. There's consequences to our sin. And so they are kept from the tree of eternal life, and they are pushed out of the Garden of Eden, and the ground is cursed, and childbearing becomes exceedingly painful, and there's consequences to brokenness, but God doesn't stop moving in their direction. And if you read the rest of Genesis, that's what you see. Man moves away from God, and God moves towards man. God, man wants to become God. God frustrates the plans of man, but ultimately fulfills his promise to redeem creation. 
Now, the beautiful thing about the scriptures, it is very frank. There's all sorts of stuff in there that's R-rated. You should not let your children just haphazardly read the Bible. In fact, there's whole sections of the scriptures devoted to the sexual ethic and its development. In the book of Genesis alone, you're instantly going to get polygamy, incest, rape, prostitution, sex, slavery, adultery, and homosexuality. Before you even get through the first half of the book, it's all right there and doesn't shy away from all of these aberrations of God's sexual ideal. Exodus 22, Leviticus 18 and 20, Deuteronomy 21 to 23, all contain laws for the people of Israel on what their sexual boundaries ought to be. It's not exhaustive, but it paints the picture and it fills out this sexual ethic that is created in God's origin story. But it's not to say that sex is all bad. In fact, the scriptures contain a whole book that just celebrates the sexual act in the covenant of marriage and the celebration of romantic love, Song of Songs. If you haven't read it, it's wonderful. And so sex isn't all bad, although it is very dangerous. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 all contain big sections of scripture about warning to sexual temptation. And in fact, the prophets harness this idea of adultery as a way of explaining to the people of God how their pursuit of other gods besides the creator God, the one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, makes God feel that he has been un- they have been unfaithful to him. They have been adulterous to him. And so this gets harnessed by the prophets as well. Now, because the narrow definition of sexual ethics, it's so small, really, really tiny, everything outside of that ends up being off limits. Now, there's a lot of the questions I've gotten over the years have been people trying to fit something extra in there. Well, what about this? Because that's not really this. And so if you find yourself um, looking for footnotes, you're probably outside the circle. And in fact, by the time you get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers will randomly list some um, kind of sexual violations, but ultimately they end up forming this word porneia, which is translated sexual immorality. So you have sexual morality inside God's sexual ethic. Then everything else outside of that is sexual immorality, porneia, and of course that's where we get the word pornography from. And so this is the filming of sex acts. And so by their very nature, they are unethical and immoral. And so this is kind of the development. Now, people will say, Jesus never talked about this, and so we can do whatever we want. I get that all the time. And I'm here to tell you, you haven't read your Bible, and I have. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus goes right to this. You remember, he's, he's, he's operating in a Jewish environment in the first century. And so that's the context. But what's being gone after here is a loophole about divorce. But Jesus brings it back to this sexual, sexual ethic. Let me show this to you in verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1. Matthew 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus, Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now, listen, i got to say this. Uh, The things the Bible says will send most people running, but the healing everyone needs can only be found in Jesus. And I'm telling you, I'm guessing, most of you, like me, you're here not because you like what the Bible says about everything, but because Jesus healed you. And this is why great crowds continue to follow him. Verse 3, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. Now listen to Jesus' answer. He answered them, have you not read, I love when he says that, these are the experts in the law, right? They memorize this stuff. They know all of it. But when they ask this question, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? What's he doing? Going back to the origin story, just like we started with, and said, 
Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know that verse, right? Very familiar verse for everybody, especially for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Marriage put them together, and the sexual union has made them uniquely one, Jesus says. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So he's saying no divorce. The answer to their question, can we divorce a woman for any reason? No. What? But there's a scripture about that. And I gag at this from people all the time. They're like, yeah, but I saw a scripture that says this. Yeah, well, so-and-so had two wives. Oh, well, this, this guy did this and this person did this. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's good. Do you understand? There's all kinds of evil stuff in there. And so here's what they, they say. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? Now, this may have been a genuine question to go, okay, Jesus, if that's the case, why is this in here? And so I'm asking for an answer. I think more likely they're going, uh-uh, ha-ha, gotcha. I think this is a gotcha moment. Found you, you didn't read the passage. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, that would be on her part, and marries another, commits adultery. <laughs> Bomb drop Jesus. Now, the disciples respond in the way you probably responded if you didn't already know this when I gave you the very narrow definition of a sexual ethic. If such is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. If that's how rigid this has to be, why bother with any of it? Now you love to love the honesty and brutality of the disciples. Verse 11. But he said to them, now check this out. Not everyone can receive this saying, what he's about to say. But only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs. Somebody say eunuchs. This is a tricky word. But this is going to describe everyone who doesn't naturally fit into God's sexual ethic. So this is a way of talking about a classification. Jesus is going to break them down. But this is for you have one man and you have one woman. And in the covenant of marriage, they get to enjoy this gift of sex that's good and results oftentimes in children and becomes the founding stones and foundation for a prosperous society. But there's, there's plenty of people who are not going to fit inside of that. They don't want to be in that, in that relationship. They aren't attracted to members of the opposite sex. They uh, are lifelong single. They'd rather not be, but they've never met the right person. Or they were married early, and then, and then the spouse died or left them. There's going to be lots and lots and lots of people who are no longer inside of that small definition of a sexual ethic. And what are they to do? Here's what Jesus says. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, so you're born that way. And this could be psychological, physiological, completely physical. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. So these would be people who were taken as slaves and castrated. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So these are people who have devoted themselves to a life of singlehood and celibacy. And then he says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He goes, here is the ethic from the very beginning, and this is it. Well, if, if we can't get out of... A, a bad marriage, why even bother? Okay, that's fine. Uh, but if you're not going to bother, then this is your only other option. So this is extreme. And this actually has implications for homosexuality, for the transgender movement. This has implications for divorce and remarriage. I don't know if you were picking up on that, but there's a whole lot we can deduce out of this very short 
little sermon answer from Jesus. But I want to draw your attention to the fact that it reaffirms the definition I started with, and that is sex is good. Sex is good. Sex is a gift, and sex is a good gift. But it's also an intensely powerful gift. And, and, and the better and more powerful a gift is, the more important its boundaries become. Take fire, for instance. My five-year-old Julian is suddenly interested in fire. How does that make fire? And I can remember when I got interested in fire, and I just wanted to burn everything. Any other pyros in the house? You grabbed a magnifying glass and were torching ants and setting wood on fire and burning designs into trees. If I, was, I was making little flash bombs in my hand with a bick, and we were just playing with fire all over the place. What happens when you play with fire? You get burned. Isn't that the truth? Now, fire is powerful. Fire, fire keeps humans alive in most of the world. Not Florida, but most of the world, right? It's fire that was happening inside your internal combustion engine that got you to church today. Um, it's fire. It's fire that uh, helps us to cook and have food that's edible. Fire is very, 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 very powerful. And it, fire is very, very, very good. But it's also exceedingly dangerous, right? And this is why it must exist within its limits or it will be destructive. And sex is exactly the same way. We live in a world, however, brothers and sisters, that is literally playing with fire. And people look around and wonder why there is so much destruction, why there is so much heartache, why there is so much angst, why there is so much bitterness, anger, resentment, futility, destructive behaviors. It's because we're playing with fire. So here's what I want to do. I want to point out some errors in the culture in which we live, and they have changed. If you read church history and if you read just any type of history, you'll notice that the sexual ethic of the culture moves in and out. It doesn't stay static. It bends and, and breaks and reforms and, and goes astray, and there's, there's, there's moments of conservatism and progressivism, and so all throughout history, the sexual ethic goes up and down. God's does not, but the culture's does. So I'm going to speak to the moment we're in, but I also want to take a little bit of time to speak to the church and the church's response, because um, sadly, we just have not handled this very well at all. And so, a couple things. The culture says everything is about sex. It just does. Every TV show, every bit of advertising, every romantic comedy, every, every, everything is all about sex. Why? Because sex is an easy way to harness desire and, and monetize people. That's all it is. And so everything is about sex. But guess what? Everything is not about sex. That's the truth. The simple truth that there is way more to life than sex. And in fact, I love the fact that there are uh, older people among us and married, happily married older people because all of us who are inside of God's sexual ethic are going to eventually face a time where sex is not possible. And if everything is about sex, then after sex ends, you have nothing. But aren't you glad? Everything is not about sex. Can I get an amen? The problem is, is that the church oftentimes has responded to the world's and the culture's everything is about sex with making sex either bad or taboo. And so it's either this thing where everybody does it and nobody talks about it, red face, or it's discouraged and turned into a necessary evil. But both are a terrible response. And we do this thing where we want to have this like one 
90-minute conversation with our 13-year-old that we, that we sweat about, and we got to get it all out there, and then we never want to talk about it again. But I, I think as we're learning, as our kids are aging up, that it's way more appropriate to have 90 or 9,000 one-minute conversations and present sex as what God presents it as being a good but also dangerous thing, a thing that is very powerful but must be contained, and that if it's contained has, a, man, an incredible blessing upon it to do more than just procreation, there's wonderful elements of recreation, and also uh, connection and union and intimacy. And so everything is not about sex, and sex should not be taboo. Secondly, the culture says each person defines for themselves what sexuality will make them happy. And this is everywhere you go, this is what everybody thinks. I decide for myself what sexuality will make me happy which is essentially makes every human being seeking to be their own God. And the reality is, you are a wonderful person, but you are a terrible God. You did not make yourself. You do not know the purpose for which you exist. You could never love yourself as much as God loves you, and he is the one who defines for you who you are, what you were made for, what will, in fact, make you happy, and he is the one who has set these limits around sex. And he, he has made limits that are for everyone. You're either married and monogamous or you're single and celibate. That's everyone. You may not like it, but the lie that you will be happier when you get to decide for yourself is where your frustration will come from. And ultimately, you will incur just upon you consequence after consequence, unsatisfaction after unsatisfaction, and destruction upon destruction. And you are much better off trusting the God who made you and going about it his way, even if it goes against what you feel on the inside. Unfortunately, the church sometimes responds by saying, sex isn't about happiness. It's about traditional marriage and procreation, and that's it. And so we start fighting about sex and trying to force God's definition on everyone in any way, shape, or form. And it sure does suck the joy right out of a good gift, doesn't it? And so we've been doing this for far, far, far too long. Thirdly, um, the culture says that nothing is off limits. I love this, though. As long as no one is getting hurt. What is that? A limit. Can we have a conversation about limits real quick? Because I hear people saying they got to live their truth. Here's what I feel like I am on the inside. Here's what I desire. Here's how I was born. Here's how God wired me. It's somehow God's fault. That's always been the response, isn't it? You did this to me. And so I've got to be me. I've got to live my authentic self. I've got I've to... I've got to do whatever makes me happy, what makes me feel good. And so we want to take all the limits off. And whether it's sex or anything else, all of us feel like once we take the limits off, then we'll be free and then we'll be happy. That's what all of us feel like. So I tell people all the time, it's way better to be single and wish you were married than to be married and wish you were single. Because we get this idea that somehow the limit we're under, the restraint we're under, is what is keeping us from being happy. And that is just simply not the case. The reality is, is that if you take all the limits off of everything, you will end up alone and dead. That's what happens. You want to do whatever you want? You know where you can do whatever you want? On a desert island. You are the king. It is very lonely on a desert island. And you will die there. And that will be the end of your life. But every time you involve other people in your life, whether it's a relationship with God or a relationship with others, there are going to be limits that must be placed on you in order for you to truly flourish. And wouldn't you rather receive God's good limits and, and be a recipient of his good gifts and have his perspective on the world than for you to decide everything that's good? And the reality is you can't 
there's no way to take all the limits off. And so you end up arbitrarily creating new limits for yourself. This is why I put that as long as nobody gets hurt in there. Because there's even people who are like, I was listening to a um, podcast, Christian sexuality podcast about a, a guy who was a Christian therapist and he was seeing a polyamorous couple. And they had decided that they were going to spice up their sex life by involving two other individuals and having these foursomes. And he was counseling them because two of them cheated with each other. So even in their limitless marriage, there were limits that were broken. And never, no one could get along. Sounds like they had just as much problem in their new foursome marriage as they did in their twosome marriage. Why? Because you can never expand the limits to find happiness. You'll never be there. And you can't arbitrarily set those limits as well. Now, unfortunately, the church has not responded this way. And I'm afraid that men's sexual misconduct has become more acceptable than women's in the church. And it's just wrong. It's just wrong for us to punish women and shame women for their sexual misconduct, but to look at a man and go, mm, boys will be boys. And that's what happens. That's what happened in Jesus' day, and that's what happens today. And it's wrong. It's just absolutely 100% wrong. And it guts our witness and the veracity of what God has said as a limit when we do that. When we say, oh, some guys look at porn. What are you going to do? Leave them if you're unhappy about it. It's not cheating. No. It is absolutely cheating, 100% cheating. Why are you lying about it if it's not cheating? And so we do this thing, and the church is just wrong. So we got to be faithful, and we got to be consistent. Lastly, and I want to just talk about this briefly. We don't actually have much time, but um, the culture says that transsexual people's gender identity doesn't match their biological sex. That's the going narrative right now. And I don't know if you know this or not, but there is an epidemic of transgenderism. And it happens to be exploding where the ideology is leftist. And so if you go to a place that is highly blue and highly progressive, you will find more teenagers who claim to be transgender than if you go to places that are not like that. Now, obviously, there's different explanations for that. But I'm here to tell you that this is a lie from the devil that's exploiting children and that adults are being complicit in the sterilization and the mutilation of children. And it's evil. And someone's got to stand up and say so. Listen, if you don't feel like what you are, stop consulting your feelings about everything. Your feelings will change 10 times in two years when you're a teenager, and you got to not listen to them. What you need is a father in heaven who knows what's best for you that you can trust, and what you need is a parent who will come alongside of you and walk with you through your confusion, but restrain you from making permanent decisions for a temporary problem. You understand? And so this is part of what we are facing, and we've got to be people who say God's way is better even if you don't feel like it. Your feelings are not God. However, the church has unfortunately made masculinity and femininity so rigidly defined and prescribed by tradition that it forces gender stereotypes on young kids that don't fit on them. And that's not God's word either. Being a girl does not mean you like dresses, plays with, play with dolls, and your favorite color is pink. Being a girl is not you have a nice high voice and you're pretty and quiet and you prance around. That's not being a girl. That may be culturally feminine, but when you read the Bible's definition of what a woman is, it's none of those things. And in fact, the church has done a terrible disservice by masking the purposeful femininity of God throughout the scriptures. Some English translations, you can't even see it. God refers to himself in the feminine all the time because God made men and women in his image. In his image, God created them, male and female. And if you are a woman, God made you to express parts of the image and character of God that men cannot express. Being a woman is a good thing. Do you know it? 
and it doesn't mean you can't take out the trash or drive. <laughs> right? But the same can be true for masculinity. Listen, there, the machoism and the masculinity, and I'm the leader and the protector of this home, you suck at a lot of things. <laughs> Let her drive. You understand? Like, we're in this together. We are people made in the image of God. When we reinforce those silly stereotypes, all we are doing is saying, you don't feel like a girl. This is what you need to be. Force it on somebody. We're, we're, caught, we're part of the problem. You understand? All right, I'm taking up too much time. Um, the, uh, these things matter. Here's where, here's where I want to wrap up. I want to wrap up right here. Uh, let me, let me um, suggest to you the, a podcast called Christian Sexuality. So go to your Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Type in Christian Sexuality. There's a series on there. It's phenomenal for you. It's fantastic for high school students. Uh, the first several I listened to, I could not agree with more. There's some, obviously some stuff in there that wouldn't 100% be in support of, but very, 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 very good. And I know you want more resources. This isn't enough. Um, secondly, the call of the disciple of Jesus is come and die that you may truly live. This is what it means to be a Jesus follower. There will be parts of you that you will have to crucify. There will be desires that are inside of you that because God says they are bad, you have to put them to death. But God does not bring us into a stop it religion. Do you realize that? He doesn't go, huh, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. What are you doing? Stop it. It's not what he does. He says, you are fixated on this. I've got something better. I've got a better power. I've got a better goal. I've got a better blessing. I've got truth that will set you free, and that's what he does every single time. But it doesn't mean it's painless, and it doesn't mean it's easy. Sometimes it means going, this is going to take me down a path that I didn't want to go down, but it's the path that God wants to lead you down, and on that path are more blessings than you could imagine for yourself. And this is the promise of God. God, God is calling all of us to walk in sexual wholeness. And it's very narrow and very rigidly defined. But it is where the blessing and power of God exists. And there are two only options. But more than that, God has come into our world in order to bring deliverance from destructive behaviors, in order to bring healing from past hurts, in order to bring redemption out of past mistakes, in order to bring purpose and meaning and beauty out of ashes. And, and he wants to not only tell you what he's calling you to, but move into your heart by his Holy Spirit, his love poured out, so that you can find in yourself, from his hand, new power to obey him and to cherish the things that he says are true. That is not inconsistent. It is the Christian way of life. And God's the one who's done it. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Get whatever you want, but you forfeit your soul. And what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will then repay each person according to what he has done. And so I don't know, um, I don't know how this hits you. I don't know what's swirling on the inside of you. Maybe your thoughts are mostly about other people at this point and all their problems, but I'm assuming that plenty of us are conflicted. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the answer. And when you lean in with open hands, 
When you ask for help, he is right there. He is right there to forgive. He is right there to restore. He is right there to empower. He is right there to give clarity, understanding, and help in time of need. Amen. God, I pray for every person in my hearing. Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do by your spirit. Lord, whatever of this truth needs to permeate the surface of individuals' thinking, God, I pray that it would. Lord, whatever reform and change needs to happen, I pray that there would be repentance and that there would be a willingness to be led by you. And God, I pray that you, that you would do what only you can do to give us eyes to see, the eyes of faith, to receive what you have said is true and good and beautiful and blessed and to walk in it no matter what it means for our future. God, knowing you is so much better than anything we can imagine on this earth. And I just pray that you would meet each of us in real time and make that true. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen.